Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. It's been a while. It's been, it's been a long time. I don't remember the last time we recorded an episode, but there wasn't a pandemic at the time. There wasn't. We, we The pandemic happened and recordings should have theoretically been easier, but actually just didn't much happen harder. at all. Yeah. We're, I don't know, the pandemic is still happening, but we finally found the emotional energy to record. Yeah, or at least the ability to approximate the emotional energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's close enough. It's going uh, to have to be enough. <laughs> remind people who we are and what we do. Yes, you are Emma Southern, a doctor of Romans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Historian supreme. Of world, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like me. Yeah. Um, and you are Janina Matthewson, writer, podcaster, creative person, and woman of majesty. That about sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. And we are here to answer history questions that people can't be bothered researching themselves because why would you? Research is very, you know, time consuming. It's very time consuming and it takes a lot of brain power and who's got an evening to dedicate to these things? The answer is us. <laughs> so you're welcome, everyone, I guess, you're is what welcome. we're saying. Yeah, thankfully we remembered what question we were going to ask answer that we said we were going to ask uh, last time in like March or whatever the hell it was. So this week we are going to be talking about extraterrestrial life. Yep, the history of aliens, basically. Or the history of the belief in aliens, specifically. So this comes from Luke, who ages and ages ago emailed us like a load of questions and I randomly sprinkled them into our our list of questions and it's popped up. Um, He asked us, how long has the idea of extraterrestrial beings existed and where did it originate? It's a very very fun question. It is a fun question. Importantly, what we're not talking about is the racist modern belief that the ancient world of any kind was inhabited by, seeded by, or built by aliens from another planet in order to harvest gold. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to touch that one. That's no fun. That I is... mean, it's kind of fun in that it's ridiculous, uh, but it's no fun in that it's racist. And we don't, like, when we were discussing this... <laughs> I did express a feeling of relief that that was not the question because there is, it's very difficult to talk about any history at all without having to talk about racism. So I don't, we don't want to borrow racism that's not there. No. And that is a modern belief. That's the modern, a very, very modern, like it's probably only a few decades old belief that aliens seeded the ancient world and looking at anything that has a picture of a flying thing on it or something with wings being like, aliens yeah so bollocks to that what we are instead going to be talking about is people in the ancient world and where the idea that life outside of our earth comes from Mm. which is really interesting because i feel like there's an argument to be had that a lot of religion the way it's described could could fall into this category like when you look at this biblical descriptions for example of like cherubim and seraphim Seraphim having like six wings and loads of eyes and cherubim have four heads. Like that's because those descriptions were written by people who, when they looked to the heavens, were looking for God rather than now when we think about that stuff, because we are by and large in the West, an atheist society or a secular society, not necessarily atheist, but you know, we're we're a religious is probably a better word. We don't, think about that sort of stuff anymore when we look to the skies we think of aliens which are I guess a bit more sciencey than the <laughs> religion well, think that but they're quite religious as well and quite yeah. a lot of the discussion that we're going to go through is mm. what is going to be very recognizable in terms of thinking about modern religious discussions yeah especially when you get to sort of the um 17th and 18th centuries when the discussion of is there life outside of the world is inextricable from discussions about faith and religion because that's how important it was. Yeah, in those and a societies. lot of it is is based on the argument. So we're only really looking at the Western world because um, the only books I could find only dealt with the Western world. The two major books that we are working from are uh, well, there's two by Michael J. Crow, which one is called the Extraterrestrial Life Debate, seventeen fifty to nineteen hundred. The other one is the Extraterrestrial Life Debate, Antiquity to nineteen fifteen. And then the uh, third one is called Stephen J. Dick, 
Uh, uh, <laughs> I said I wouldn't laugh. Uh, <laughs> And you failed. You're a grown uh, woman and you laughed at someone having the surname Dick. Uh, plurality <laughs> of worlds, the origins of the extraterrestrial life debate from Democritus to Kant. So they're all very focused on the Western world. I did have a poke around to see what um, non-Western stuff I could find and it was not a lot, but I primarily focused it on the West. And the idea of talking about extraterrestrial life is not framed in the way that we frame it now. We now frame it in the fact that we know for a fact that there are other solar systems and other worlds and other planets that and the fact there are such a huge amount of them that it seems extremely likely that there would be some form of life somewhere but the idea of an extraterrestrial life debate began in the ancient classical greek world in the fifth century bce athens where all philosophical arguments kind of begin (laughs) And they took the form of arguing over aperoi cosmoi, which is the idea of infinite or many worlds. Were there, was there literally, was there more than one world was the discussion that they were having for a very long time and very heatedly mm-hmm. um, because they got real heated about this stuff in ancient Athens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and these ideas come from very core metaphysical arguments about what the world is, what the world is made of, where the world comes from, what the purpose of the world is, that were quite heated philosophical conversations that were being had in the Greek world or in Athens. And it basically comes down to an argument between a group who are called kind of the atomists who later developed into the Epicureans mm-hmm. and that Aristotelian approach to metaphysics. I remember learning about atomists at high school and I don't know if I, this is true or if I made it up or remembered it wrong, but it was my favourite thing at the time, which was <laughs> that Epicurus basically was a liar who <laughs> looked around the... Greek society at the time where every time there was a big disaster, everyone was, you know, sacrificing things to gods. And it was this, there was this desperation over trying to keep yourself safe from the anger of gods, basically. Mm -hmm. And he didn't believe in the gods and he was like, people are spending way too much energy on this and it's bullshit. So I'm just going (laughs) to tell them that that they're made of atoms that just disperse when they die and that's fine. (laughs) So they don't need to panic anymore. And then he got found out because his theory, he didn't think it through. And he said all atoms travel through space at consistent speeds at consistent spaces. And when they collide, they form stuff. And then someone was like, if they're traveling at consistent speeds and consistent spaces, then how do they ever collide? Uh, Which does (laughs) make things fall apart a little bit. At which point he was like, yeah, sometimes they just jump out and rock off to the side, you know? Yeah, the atomic swerve. (laughs) Yeah. It's what it's called. Yeah. Which is that sometimes they might just move around. Yes, he did not entirely come up with the idea. He developed uh, existing ideas. So. Yeah, and yeah, atoms were already. Yeah, so atomism it was developed by two guys called Democritus and Leucippus mm-hmm. in Athens in 5th century BCE, which is about 200 ish years before Epicurus. And they developed this idea that, yeah, that the world was made of atoms which moved in a void mm-hmm. and that all matter was made up of infinite atoms moving infinitely in a, and randomly in a void and that matter was created by the random combination of these atoms. Mm-hmm. They thought that atoms were the final indivisible form of all life. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really think about it too much more than that, but basically that is the the metaphysics of it at its core and therefore they said if we have been created randomly by random atoms and all of this life that you see around you then obviously there are other in the infinite universe there are other worlds which have been created by there are in fact an infinite number of worlds that have been created by the random collection of Mm. atoms and that if you if there are infinite worlds and there are infinite forms of life upon those worlds. Yeah. And so Epicurus, because the ancient philosophers, God bless their hearts, liked to mostly write things down in letters or in dialogues. And what that means is that they're pithy as fuck. 
Like they can get a paragraph down where they get their ideas in and you can just read that paragraph and be like, boom, know what we're talking about. <laughs> we get to the later ones who I got very bored of, mm-hmm. like actively very bored in the 18th and 19th centuries. Like, stab me in the fucking eyes. <laughs> Stop having to read this stuff. Not pithy at all. No. Don't know how to be pithy. Don't want to be pithy. Like the point, it feels like the point is not what you think. The point is how long you can take to say it. <laughs> yes. How are you being paid by the word? What is this? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Epicurus, who then developed these ideas into a kind of more complete philosophy with ethics and the like, wrote to Herodotus, who if you know anything about the ancient Greek world, will know that Herodotus is one of the great historians of the ancient world. He invented the concept and word, uh, the kind of concept of historia, as in like storytelling, um, and wrote his amazing books of kind of histories of Greece and wonders of the world. And it's brilliant Mm -hmm. and everyone should read it. And he was friends with Epicurus, who wrote a lot of letters to Herodotus about his philosophy, one of which included the excellent paragraph, which you'll note is very pithy, (laughs) Furthermore, we must believe that in all worlds there are living creatures and plants and other things we see in this world. For indeed, no one could prove that in a world of one kind there might or might not have been included kind of seeds from which living things and plants and all the rest of the things we see are composed, and that in the world of another kind they could not have been. Mm -hmm. So, infinite worlds, and on those infinite worlds there will be infinite types of life. And... The kind of purest distillation of Epicureanist thought and atomist thought comes from a Roman era Epicurean called Lucretius. He wrote an epic poem called On the Nature of Things, which also includes sentences about, uh, like, on every ground, therefore, you must admit there exists elsewhere other congeries of matter similar to this one in which the ether clasps in ardent embrace. That's nice. Which is lovely. It is lovely. On the other hand, however, there were, there was Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Aristotle was a big smug man who was very angry and was the um he was very very much an anti atomist <laughs> he despised the concept of atomist he was plato's student mm-hmm. and actually i was thinking about this earlier everybody always portrays like Plato and Aristotle when you see them in like films and stuff as being like old baldy men yeah and they were wrestlers and like Plato was a award-winning Olympic wrestler and they were very big into sport they were basically the jocks of the ancient philosophical world so basically it was cool and hip to be stand around uh, philosophizing because you and also then have could a like wrestle. just wrestle someone to the ground. So what were they going to do? You took off all it? your clothes and wrestled. Yeah. yeah. So in this in this imagining, you have to imagine the atomists are like the nerds. They've got glasses, and Plato <laughs> and Aristotle are the big jocks, and they're also more cool. This is also where like certain wanky men, more more, more recent men, got the idea that like wrestling, ancient Greek style naked wrestling, was inextricable <laughs> from like intellectual endeavor. Right, like this is. Was <laughs> it Lawrence who was obsessed with Nicole wrestling all his friends? Yeah, yeah. And isn't it? Is um, is it Women in Love? That the film that's got the yeah. wrestling scene. Yeah. Anyway, so they're the cool guys, and they're the louder guys, and they fucking hate Democritus and Lucifer, and they argue and believe very strongly that the idea of atoms is obvious stupid wank Mm -hmm. that should literally be burnt for being so stupid because obviously the world is made up of four elements. Obviously. (laughs) Which can only move in certain directions. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just obviously. Except the fifth element. (laughs) It's the fifth element, love. (laughs) It's not, it's ether. No, but I saw it dust in a bookshelf. And it's, and it's love. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. No, sadly. The fifth element is ether, which is the divine substance of the heavenly spheres. Mm-hmm. And that moves in another direction. So basically, the four classical elements are obviously earth, air, wind, and fire. Mm-hmm. Earth and water can only move down. Remember the very first day, first day 25th, 21st day <laughs> of September. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and air and fire can only move up, mm-hmm. 
right? Sure, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh, because if you look at them, right, if you, the only time you can see air is when you see smoke and that's moving up. Yeah, it doesn't matter that sometimes you can also feel air. It's irrelevant. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> it's irrelevant that sometimes you feel mo- air moving across. Ignore it. No, it's primarily going up. <laughs> and when you look at fire, obviously, that's always going up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, no, never don't see fire coming down. That's very stupid. When you see earth, it's mostly falling. Because how? But how did it get up there to fall in the first place? Is, well, is like my if question. you pick it up and drop it, then it goes it does down. Fall. Okay, that's true. And if you pick up a rock and drop it, then it goes down. Yeah. So obviously, earth can only go down. Obviously, water can tell you. I guess because it doesn't really move anywhere. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it can only move down. All right. Okay. How an ether, on the other hand, is around us and moves around in a circle. Okay. Makes okay. Sense. This all this stuff incidentally is more important to modern physics than you would expect. <laughs> I mean, I know so, that heat rises, so they were yeah. partly they were partly <laughs> correct. They also argue that the world is a designed world, a finite, perfect, and unchanging world. So, that- how does that fit in with Greek religion, more broadly speaking? Because when you talk about like. Greek gods, they didn't create the world. The, the Titans didn't create no. the world. Well, they are gods, like, they are kind of accepted as a part of it, but they they but believe that creators. there is... No, they are created as part of it. Right. So right. there so is Apollo a prime... Is the sun and et cetera. Yeah. Mm. So they call, they believe in a, what they call a prime mover mm-hmm. uh, who kind of began everything that called, like created the universe or the world because they don't believe in a universe. <laughs> they don't believe that there are other worlds mm. because they see the idea that there is this earth, there is our heavens, the planets and stars we see, but that is it. And they don't conceptualise the planets and stars that they can see as being anything other than kind of things hanging, essentially. Right, yeah. <laughs> and they see themselves as... And if the world that has been created is perfect and and is finite and is created from these elements, then there can't be any other worlds. And they think that the idea of other worlds and therefore other animals on other worlds is yeah. stupid as fuck. Because everyone knows if you create a world, you just do the one. Yeah, exactly. Why would you bother? Oh, no, you see, we're going to get to this later um, <laughs> because the Christians have a very long argument about this in the Middle Ages. <laughs> uh, medieval theologians get very into that question. But that basically that's the, the, ma- the a major philosophical metaphysical debate that rages throughout the ancient world. Mm. And then some people spend time thinking about what... If you had people in other words, like, okay, atomists, they're like, okay, well, if there are other worlds, then what like things might look like? And they kind of focus on the moon because it's the closest thing they can see. Mm. And they can see that it's a big thing in the sky and they can see that it moves and they can see it pretty clearly. There is, in fact, uh, a really good kind of second century Roman, he's a Greco-Roman philosopher called Plutarch, who wrote loads and loads of stuff, one of which was called On the Face Which Appears in the Orb of the Moon. Ah, man and the moon's older than you think. Yeah, so they can, I mean, you know, they don't have any light pollution. The world is very dark. Mm. They can see the stars. They can see, there's also a very strong belief in astrology. And they can, you know, the reason that we have all of these, all of the zodiac signs and whatever in the, what are they called? Constellations. Mm is because they could see them so clearly and they named them. <laughs> Whether Those names have stuck with us until now. But he wrote On the Face and Pitch Appears in the Orb of the Moon, which is a very long dialogue, which is a very serious consideration of whether the moon could be inhabitable. Mm-hmm. Like, literally whether, from what they can see of the moon it could theoretically have life on it. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's between these two guys called Theon and Lamprias. And Theon argues that there could never be any life on the moon because they can see that there's no weather. Um, so there's no winds or cloud or rain and they think there's no water there. Mm-hmm. And they can see that the sun is beaming light onto it. Um, so they think it'll be too hot there. And plus, this is my favourite bit, it very clearly moves around in the sky. They can see it moving. Mm-hmm. And so that would wang the inhabitants off. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be on a big moving orb in space. What a stupid thing to do. <laughs> Obviously, it would fling them right off. Obviously. 
uh, if it was just moving around in the sky, which is lovely. <laughs> so he argues that it couldn't possibly be there. Mm-hmm. But Lamprius, on the other hand, argues that the movement is gentle and serene and you wouldn't notice it when you were on it and that there might not be possible to have life in the very, very hot side or the very, very dark, cold side, but that there would be a temperate zone between them where there would be, it would be perfect for life mm-hmm. and that the any life there might not need wind and rain and clouds because it would be naturally adapted to a sunny climate. It's getting a bit evolutionary. Exactly. A lot of ideas that we think are modern are not really at all. Yeah, <laughs> funny that. <laughs> yeah, and there's lots of thoughts about what if, like this is genuinely quite a serious and also widespread topic of conversation amongst kind of philosophical thinking people who like to think about big ideas in the ancient world. A lot of them seem to think that they would be massive mm-hmm. if they were animals on the moon. My personal favourite is a guy called Lucian of Samosota, who is a satirical writer who takes the piss out of everyone and everything. He's kind of a... He's kind of a Jonathan Swift of his time. So he proposes really ludicrous ideas that are so outrageously stupid that that they become funny. And then does a lot of playing with words and puns and silly wordplay that doesn't translate into English at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's very funny if you read Greek, but otherwise not funny in the slightest. (laughs) But he wrote a book called The True History, which is, and I really enjoy the fact that he did this. It's like a kind of Richard Dawkins-esque, deeply humorless takedown of like Homeric epic. (laughs) (laughs) which suggests that he thinks that people believe very literally in Homeric epic Mm -hmm. and like these ideas that gods would move people around and would rain blood on places and would build a mountain just to annoy somebody rather than read them as kind of allegorical or as literature. Yeah. But I've just, in the same way that Richard Dawkins and people and Sam Harris and whatever seem to think that people who are religious are literally incapable of thinking about the Bible in en- or uh-huh. religion in anything but the most literal way. So he wrote what seems to be an entirely pointless takedown <laughs> of... His misinterpretation of, of, of other people's attitudes to the Iliad. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. And it's a... Uh, and it is quite smug, but basically the story is that it's a first-person account of a guy who get keeps getting... He's on a sailing trip and he keeps getting swept up in weather that takes him to different places. Mm-hmm. And the first place it takes him is to an island where there's a river of wine and trees that look like people. And then they get caught in a whirlwind and it takes them up to the moon. Sure. And on the moon, he meets the king of the moon, who is a Greek guy who got, got ended up there accidentally and became and the king. They made him... His- the king? Obviously. Because he was Greek, so obviously he was, he was superior. He was the best one, so they made his thing. <laughs> like dancing with wolves. Like they're like, you seem like you do being on the moon better than us. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so but uh, when he arrives, it's the middle of a war between the king of the moon and the king of the sun. Uh-huh. Over who gets to rule the morning star, which is Venus. Sure. So they're in the middle of a war and they have all of these people and animals and fighters who are all primarily riding or fighting with massive things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, the first thing that he meets are uh, what he calls vulture dragoons, who are men riding vultures with three heads. I mean, that sounds great. Yeah, and then there are grass plumes, which are birds with wings like lettuce mm-hmm. leaves. Millet shooters and garlic fighters, which he does not describe <laughs> any further than that. <laughs> flea archers, who are archers riding on fleas, which are as large as 12 elephants. I do not want to meet those particular fleas. <laughs> uh, 200 foot long ants. Oofed. Something he calls poppy corns, which are dog-faced men. <laughs> From uh, the dog star, obviously. Sure, obviously. Uh, something he was Milky Way slingers. Okay. Unclear. Uh, and cloud <laughs> centaurs, who are giant centaurs from the clouds. Yeah, I mean, I can I can see that. Cloud c- yeah. centaurs. No, yeah. 
Makes and sense. there's um, another one who I've forgotten to write down the name of, but who fight with asparagus. So instead <laughs> of having lances, or they poke each other with asparagus. So that's quite good. That's, uh, that's very nice. <laughs> um, eventually, they come to a kind of truce, and then he goes well launches into a description of the people there, and he just keeps adding more and more ridiculous things on. So this is his description of moon people. They are not born of women, but of men. They marry men and do not even know the word women at all. Up until the age of 25, each is a wife and thereafter a husband. She's very Ursula Le Guin. Mm. They carry their children in a calf of the leg instead of the belly. When conception takes place, the calf begins to swell. In the course of time, they cut it open and deliver the child dead. And then they bring it to life by putting the wind with its mouth open. Another thing, they all have artificial parts that are sometimes of ivory and sometimes for the poor of wood, and they make use of them in their intercourse. When a man grows old, he does not die, but is dissolved like smoke and turns into air. Then he gets more, even more detailed about their physical attributes. Uh-huh. They, don't, they all shave all their hair and consider hair to be disgusting, mm-hmm. except on comets where they really like long hair, which is a really bad joke about the fact that in Latin... A comet mean like the word for comet is hairy star. Oh, I mean, <laughs> like it is. This it is a is, hairy star. Like this is the pun. Like, <laughs> or loads of this is really funny puns. They have beards which grow on their knee. Sure, um, but they don't have toenails uh, because they only have one toe. Sure, everyone has a nail on on one toe. <laughs> everyone has a cabbage leaf there on the small of their back, like a tail. <laughs> Okay. And their noses run honey. That would be delicious. They use their bellies as pockets because they can open and close them. That would be very handy. And in particular, they put their children inside there when their children are cold because inside they're all hairy. He invented kangaroos. He invented kangaroos. They have removable eyes and quite often lose them. And so (laughs) the rich have massive stores of eyes. Uh-huh. Well, you would. I really like that his vision, he can think of all of this stuff, but he can't be asked to think of a different political system other than the one that he knows. Uh-huh. Imagination fails at a certain point, and that point is what What with money? What do? Yeah, and they all have plain leaves for ears. Mm-hmm. The rich wear clothes made out of glass, and the poor wear clothes made out of brass. I would rather wear brass clothes than glass clothes, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with immensely you. Immensely uncomfortable, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah. I don't want that to break and then stab me in my bits, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and then he kind of runs out of steam a little bit and decides to go back to back to Earth. So bored of looking at them now, so he leaves. Sure. <laughs> but, Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but there you have So it's often called the first ever science fiction story, although it's not really science fictional, but it's just him imagining what... Well, it's him coming up with the most ludicrous story that he possibly could. Like, I went to the moon and there were all these people and they had tails that were leaves and they and their nose ran honey. Yeah, to just try and own the libs, I guess. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or just I don't even know who he's trying to own. I feel like everybody... I feel like it is... He wrote it for a bunch of other, like, quite smug, educated people who would all sit around and laugh at their imagined idea of an uneducated poor. Mm. Like, oh, 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 they're all so silly. They think that Homer thing really happened. <laughs> would that ever bother him to talk to anybody? Yeah, sure. Recognisable behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very familiar. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, like, the basic dichotomy of beliefs in the ancient world. And it seems like, for a very long time... It was that kind of atomist, certainly through the Roman world, the kind of Aristotelian perspective was considerably less popular mm-hmm. in terms like in terms of philosophical writing anyway. And it looks like from like from Plutarch and stuff that there were genuinely people having conversations about what many worlds might look like. Yeah. And what people on the moon might be like if you could get to the moon, which I enjoy very much. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, yeah. Um, and then Christianity happened and that ended. <laughs> yeah. Christianity ended a lot of things. It did. There's two of the early Christian theologians who quite like the idea of a multi-worlds or many-worlds hypothesis. Uh, one of whom is my heretical bay origin, 
who I love. Mm-hmm. He's semi-heretical. There's a lot of arguments about whether he's heretical or not, but and also he may or may not have castrated himself. That's not ideal. It wasn't ideal in people. It's unclear whether he actually did. Eusebius says he did, and Eusebius didn't like Origen or Origen's ideas one bit. Mm-hmm. And Origen's, so he, Origen was this bishop who wrote a lot of uh, biblical exegesis in the third century, mm-hmm. like a lot. And they're really good, And but they're very, he has a very um, hermeneutic approach and he believes that a lot of the Old Testament in particular is metaphor and analogy. Um, mm. And he reads many layers of meaning into every sentence. Sure. And a lot of people felt that he was too metaphorical about it because he he really liked to unpack all the potential metaphorical meanings because he's taking New Testament theology or New Testament Western theology and applying it to the ancient Old Testament stuff. So when he's reading like the Song of Songs, for example, which is a sex poem. Mm-hmm. About here being like goats coming down from Mount exactly. Gilead. <laughs> yeah. It's um, beautiful you- stuff. Your neck being like a beautiful ivory tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he reads that kind of thing and he has a whole, he develops um, a whole reading of it whereby actually this is about the relationship between a person's soul and Christ or between okay. Christ and the church is another layer. So it, it is where the church is the bride of Christ. Yeah. In, he reads all these kind of metaphorical layers of meaning into it um, and some people don't like that. So there's these things called the originist crises and they're good fun. But the only other person who quite likes the idea is my highly orthodox bae, Augustine, Mm -hmm. who no one could ever accuse of being unorthodox or heretical in any way because he would shower them until they stopped. (laughs) It's handy when you can do that. (laughs) Mainly he would shower them in a very, very well argued, very, very smart, very well put together letter where you go, oh, okay, I guess you're right. (laughs) Um, But he imagined that if there are infinite spaces of time before the world During which God could not have been idle In like manner they may conceive outside of the world Infinite realms of space In which if anyone says the omnipotent cannot hold his hand from working Will it not follow that they must adopt Epicurus's dream of innumerable worlds? Mm -hmm. So basically he argues that there was It's interesting that he conflate space and time as being one thing so tick for augustine there yeah and because there was infinite time before this world was created which this world was created and is perfect and is um us that means that we either are suggesting that god was doing nothing for an infinite period of time until it came into his mind to create us or we say that he ha- he was working that entire time creating other places. Yeah. And that becomes a very contentious idea l- much later on because then for a good, like, 800 years, everyone f- stops thinking about the idea. <laughs> or everyone who wrote anything stops thinking about it, which is largely because it became very, like, the... M- overarching metaphorical metaphorical metaphysical um conception of the world which was the only one able to be expressed through the church Mm -hmm. was that the world was created was singular that the heavens and earths were created singularly yeah i did have a wee look and see what the quran which was written in around 700 said as to whether there was anything or anyone had written anything there about or exegesis about the Quran and hadiths and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I did find somebody writing, reading uh, that the Quran does not rule out the possibility of inhabited extraterrestrial worlds and does not rule out the possibility of multiple worlds. Um, quoting Quran 42, 29. And among his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the living creatures that he has scattered throughout them. And he has the power to gather them together when he wills. Sure, so they're implying that there are living creatures in the heavens as well as on the earth. Yeah. Mm. So there's like there's a lot of discussion about that word that is created there as living creatures. Yeah. But kind of medieval and early medieval Islamic scholars were writing things like it is not impossible that in the heavens there are species of animals that move just like the humans walk on this earth. Mm-hmm. 
and Hazrat Ali, who is in the Sunni tradition, I believe, the fourth righteous caliph. I always confuse Sunni and Sufi, I'm sorry. Um, said that in the stellar bodies, there are cities like those on the earth. So there is a an Islamic tradition mm. that kind of talks about it, but um, it's not been written about as much in English, uh, so I could not access it. But in the West, everybody was just kind of sitting around going, hurdy <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing the church spread and, and kind of stamped down discussion so there was like a just a period i feel like there was just a period of time when you just the problem didn't... is that it's that the west is not very rich during this time this is a time of eastern kind of economic and intellectual supremacy mm. when all of you know all of the great libraries of the world all of the great um intellectual traditions of the world are in Iraq and are in Ethiopia and are in China and are not in the West because the West is kind of in kind of in a period where it is rebuilding and so there is just not the intellectual tradition outside of the church the church is the only space where there is enough cash basically for people yeah. to spend their time thinking about things and then there has to be an orthodoxy mm. Until there starts being more contact between the East and the West. And particularly what happens is that uh, a guy translates Aristotle from Arabic because Aristotle was lost pretty much. He was not a part of the Western tradition of um, philosophy Mm -hmm. for hundreds and hundreds of years, but he was kept in Arabic libraries. That's so nice. Like you, I don't think anyone ever talks about enough necessarily about the the way that we have um, historical texts and the amount of cooperation that is required. Just just even like one little document for that to survive this long has to be under the protection of someone at yeah. some point, and then hand over a- to someone else and pass between people who are all equally committed to keep to preserving it. Yeah, it's like a really um, beautiful it- act to do. For a very long time, because Aristotle and a lot of medical writing and a lot of scientific writing was not considered to be interesting at all to Western churches, it was preserved entirely in the Arabic tradition. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the great libraries of Baghdad, which someone should ask us a good question about. Baghdad and uh, <laughs> but and Arabic libraries because I'd like to talk them more. But there's a really good book which is called The Map of Knowledge by Violet Moller, mm-hmm. um, which is about how classical teaching was transmitted into the modern world and how it was moved from the Western world into the Arabic world and then back again. And it moved back specifically. Aristotle moved back because a guy went to Spain specifically to translate kind of classical Greek and Roman, it wasn't called classical at the time, but to translate Greek and Roman and Arabic scientific texts back into Latin and Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he went to southern Spain and to the um, Arabic cities there and to the libraries and translated them and then made them, in the words of Michael Crow, made them accessible to Western writers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got really angry about this on Twitter because he, I'm going to find the screenshot that I did. He writes about it in a way that actively eradicates the Arabic. He says, a remarkable rebirth of learning occurred in Western Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries. Blah, 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 blah. Um, in the first of these centuries, many... Classic scientific works of antiquity came to be translated into Latin by various scholars, the most prominent of whom was Gerard of Cremona, who's the guy who specifically went to um, translate things. Among the authors thus made accessible to Western thinkers was Aristotle. And you're like, where, what was he translating them from? Was it Greek? Was he translating them from Greek into Latin? No, Arabic. So we have Aristotle because someone had translated it into Arabic and that was the version that survived and yeah. Yeah, we're just going to ignore all of that. <laughs> we're just going to skim right over what language he was translating it from. Anyway, fuck him. Uh, <laughs> we'll fuck him hey. again later on. Just you wait. <laughs> um, and everyone's like, oh, this is very interesting. New things to read about. And they read Aristotle. And then Thomas Aquinas, who is a 13th century Italian friar, is like fucking loves Aristotle and basically writes all of these massive philosophical treaties, which he sees as theological, kind of 
reviewing uh-huh. <laughs> um, Aristotelian philosophy um, through the lens of 13th century Christianity. Mm-hmm. He thinks that Aristotle is pretty great. His likes his condemnations and his taking apart of atomist theory. He likes his idea of the world as perfect and beautiful and created and of a prime mover. And he enjoys it very much and writes about it at great length. <laughs> and it's Thomas Aquinas who is obviously the kind of great theologian of his age <laughs> and who was a student of a great theologian and was already pretty famous um, who really brings Aristotle and these arguments back into the world um, and the hilarious effect of this is that he by repeating Aristotle's kind of proofs and arguments against the theory of plural worlds he popularises the idea ideas that Aristotle was refuting. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And he starts making people think about that. It's like uh, uh, the academic example of when you uh, quote tweet someone to disagree with them and get dumped on. <laughs> exactly. And all you're doing is showing people the dunked on tweet yeah. um, and giving them more oxygen. So he tries to um, show how good Aristotle is at dunking on people and accidentally gives loads of oxygen to atomist theories um which means that loads of slightly contrarian um philosophers and theologians of the time start thinking really hard about whether it is theologically impossible for god to have created several worlds if he had wanted to Mm. and quite a lot of them think that tommy boy Tommy Aquinas is maligning the good name of God and suggesting that he is in some way incompetent by suggesting that he would only do one world like some kind of one world idiot. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you think he could only create one world, do you? Don't you think he could have created loads of them if he wanted to? Yeah, and you get into people who are like, this is... It, I th- it, feel, it feels to me like one of the points of the debate... I mean, this is what I was talking about really when I said earlier that it becomes inextricably intertwined does the if if you are arguing about the existence of life elsewhere in the universe in a world where the existence of god and the divine intelligent creation of earth is a given then Mm -hmm. does the existence of life on other words confirm or dispute that reality and i think it's really really interesting that that the the debate having those sorts of angles it is. And it's interesting the points at which they start from, like, um, and how they argue what couldn't couldn't be. And mm. like the at this stage, the argument is entirely around God's omnipotence. Um, mm. like, are you malign or like what is the purpose almost of God's omnipotence? Because what Augustine says, for example, is that God wouldn't just be sitting around. Yeah. In infinite time and infinite space, not doing anything, he would always be working. And if he's it's, working, that means he's got to have something to be working with. Interesting as well, because I think this is, this is a theological debate that continues to, today. Like, I think it comes up in the daily church service, you know, even like how small you like your your vision yeah. of what you think the world and the universe is. That is how, like how, how small does your vision imply that God is? You know, it's. it's yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Um, no, you're right. Um, and that's quite a lot of what the argument is. And you get people like Henry of Ghent and Richard of Middleton and William of Ware. There's only one of these people in each of these places, obviously. Um, <laughs> William of Ockham. Um, and uh, Nicol Osream is a good one. He's very fun um, in the 14th century who um, thinks really hard about it and decides that eventually it's not theologically impossible that God could have created other worlds because obviously he could because he's omnipotent, but he didn't. And we know that he didn't because we can see that the planets are too heavy. Mm, sure, yeah. And if there were planets up there, then they would fall fall down. Yeah. Um, because he's like, if, you have, if you're trying to put something into the air, then you have to uh, attach a light thing to it to lift it up. Yeah, obviously. So they all need like balloons holding them in the sky. And we, yeah, exactly. And we can't see any balloons holding them in the sky, so they would just drop onto <laughs> us. So therefore, there aren't any other planets up there. Yeah. Which, when you think about it, fair dues. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, I also like that because, like, that shift, that's a big shift from Aristotle, who believed in a flat Earth, to this knowledge, like, he, he has this knowledge that it's a flat Earth with the heavens above, but... Osreem 
has the knowledge that the Earth is round mm. and therefore other worlds would be round and therefore there would be big heavy things in the sky. So, yeah. um, and I like I like that shift. It's nice. Because, like, you basically they're having the same arguments that Aristotle was having with himself, but you have these new knowledges, like, of a heavy, round earth and of a omnipotent single god yeah. in the Christian sense that completely changed the flavour of how it's expressed and thought about. Yeah. And everyone's having a lovely time with that until the year 1417, when a guy called uh, Poggio Broccolini. Nice name. I know, it's so good. <laughs> who is what's called a Renaissance humanist who dedicated his life to rediscovering and rescuing ancient, I, ancient manuscripts from Western libraries. Yeah. So he travelled around monasteries and nunneries and churches and libraries and everywhere that had manuscripts and hunted through literally one by one their manuscripts um, in order to find anything that was from the ancient world or that he recognised as being from the ancient world. Um, This is where the notion of the ancient world being classical starts to develop uh, or being kind of perfect is this Renaissance humanist idea. But anyway, he is uh, hoking around in a Benedictine library in Fulda in Germany, and he finds a manuscript by a guy called Lucretius, and he recognises the name Lucretius from some Cicero that he has read, mm-hmm. um, and he pulls it out and starts having a read, um, and it turns out to be on the nature of things. Well, nice. A thing that hasn't been read for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he gets people to make a load of copies of them and then starts spreading them around his friends and family. (laughs) And at this time in 1417 is when we are getting, obviously, the Reformation is occurring um, (laughs) and people are thinking very hard about the nature of God and the nature of the universe and then how that relates to the church and how that relates to people. And so Lucretius is on the nature of things, which says, sure, there's a God, but he's not very interested in us and we were all create. He did not create us. We are created from randomness. Drops a very thrilling bomb into... (laughs) (laughs) Into the intellectual world of the 15th century. Yeah. And particularly in England, where it's frankly a hotbed of people arguing about shit. Mm -hmm. People love it. They go absolutely wild for it. And they love the idea of multiple worlds and other worlds. They don't, however, have any particular interest in the idea of other life, as far as I can tell, which I find Mm. very disappointing. They couldn't find anybody being like... Yeah, but what if there was another world and everybody had big eyes? <laughs> but we do get, in 1543, we get Copernicus's thinking about the Earth as mm-hmm. a planet that revolves around the sun, which changes everything up again. Apparently, according to whatever book I was reading... One you of the were reading Michael written, Crow. My, yes, so reading Michael Crow. He literally only saw the, he saw the finished published version of his book on the day he died. <laughs> As it was on the revolutions of celestial orbs, was what it was called. Um, and yeah, it claimed that the Earth revolved around the sun and that the sun is itself a star, just like the other stars that you can see in the world, which then suggests there are many planets mm-hmm. revolving around those suns. And that, at that and then there is a, um, a branching off of debate on whether or not they are inhabited. And a lot of the arguments against him were just, but Jesus... <laughs> Which was a pretty good argument at the time, I guess. I mean, yeah, like, well, what you're saying is that the world was not created and we are not the centre of it, and uh, I don't like that at all. Um, And that undermines literally everything that we believe about the nature of the universe or the nature of the world. Yeah. We do also get a return to, and this is just charming and ridiculous and absurd, like, everyone who seems to be talking about this stuff at this point is um, mathematicians and physicists. And they do, again, as was happening, you know, in ancient Greece, present their views as little fictional dialogues. Yeah, I love a, I love a dialogue. To explain them, which is wild to me. Um, I love a dialogue. You're like, it's such a good yeah. way of presenting an argument. Yeah. Bring back the dialogue, and this I was, um, Like, this is a point in time that people talk about as being the Copernican revolution, but... Actually, not that many people 
expounded on his ideas. It wasn't until their writings got out that it started to really mm. change stuff. But there was Gio- Giordano Bruno, mm-hmm. who for him it was literally infinite worlds as a confirmation of faith rather than an argument against it. He was quoted as saying, thus is the excellence of God magnified and the greatness of his kingdom made manifest. He is glory- glorified not in one, but in countless suns, not in a single earth, a single world, but in a, in a thousand thousand, I say an infinity of worlds. Um, he was totally burnt at the stake by the Roman Inquisition. But he said it. Um, See, I like that and I like that. Yeah. It's very much a sort of similar thing to what Augustine was saying, which is that, oh, you can't say that God would just create one and yeah. be done. It's like, not only he can't, not only has he created one son, which is amazing, yeah. he's created loads of yeah. them. How good is if that? If God is infinite, why would he not and make infinite all, things? Yeah. That's because it... It undermines the idea that humans are the purpose of his creation. Like yes. God didn't create the earth for us. If he created a whole universe and created a thousand thousand worlds, then we as people are not his most important treasured things. Yeah. Mm. Then what the fuck's Adam and Eve about us? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like he seems very interested in us in the Old Testament, and now you're saying he's yeah. not. Yeah. You also get around this uh, time in 1608. So. Few, few decades later, Galileo Galilei invents the telescope, which woo, fucks shit up all over again because suddenly he was able to see that there were mountains on the moon and there were things that looked like oceans and um, he could look at Jupiter and see that it looks similar to the Earth. He could see that there were just millions and millions and billions upon billions of stars. He didn't really talk much about the possibility of other life. The most out, out there, he mostly was just like, there's someone smarter than me who cares more about that sort of stuff that will go on on that one. Um, But he ruled out the idea of life on the moon because he did a lot of maths about the earth's rotation around the sun and the moon's rotation around the earth. um, And he he didn't think that the moon got enough light to support life, but not everyone agreed. You get people like Johannes Kepler who wrote a whole novel about his theory of life on the moon. (laughs) <laughs> which is about a secret pathway between the earth and the moon um, and goes into Amazing. lots of detail about how looking down on the earth from up there. And he, uh, but he did, he didn't think that there were multiple suns and multiple planets. He just, I think didn't really understand the idea of distance, I think. And he didn't, rather, rather <laughs> didn't than assuming the, the stars were very, far very away. far away, he assumed they were very, very small and that the sun was the only one big <laughs> enough and bright enough to have planets orbiting it. Uh, and therefore like, uh, the sun the is the central the of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, this one is very small. Yes, but that, that one, one is, is very far, far away. away. <laughs> exactly. He just tripped over that logical step. Um, so he was a rubbish at painting. But it's like, po- didn't get perspective at yeah. all. It's very possible that he was seeing what he what he wanted to because he literally he in a letter to Galileo he literally said that he was terrified that Giordano Bruno had been right and he was very very relieved that Galileo's telescope hadn't shown the existence of other planets orbiting other suns uh, because that would have just been too upsetting for him apparently very stressful yeah Yeah. my 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 we rant about um Michael Crow is in what he says about another guy called Bernard Le Beauvier de Fontenelle, who his oh, particular fun. dialogue uh, that he expresses views within <laughs> is between a, fossil, a philosopher and a charming marquise. And therefore, it's one of the... F- I'm quoting now. It is one of the first works <laughs> dealing with a scientific subject that was fully accessible to women because the dialogue <laughs> was between a man and a woman. So because he wrote it, with a woman asking questions, all of a sudden he enabled women to be able to read it. What like, a genius. Women can't even look at things that have only men in them. This but whole I history, women be... have been picking up books and being like, I don't understand these words because they're being <laughs> said to a fictional you know, man instead of a fictional woman. I see, dude, the problem is, you know how men can't watch films that have got girls in them because their eyes bleed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and exactly their brains the can't handle thing. it. Yeah. Um, and if there's like a woman doing a thing or there's more than one woman talking about a thing, they're like, well, this is a girls' movie for girls. Yeah. So obviously it's disgusting. Yeah, it's exactly the same. It's like, that's exactly how women in the 17th century felt. Yeah. 
And if they opened a thing and it had men in it, they had to throw it across the room in disgust. I mean, I just don't think they could even see it. It would be like not <laughs> the Roman alphabet anymore. It would like twist and just move, move around. around. <laughs> but his whole thing was that um, why would God bother creating planets that are similar to Earth if it wasn't so that they could have life on them? Which is a nice yeah. wee thing. And then you get people like Christian Huygens who just went into a whole bunch of details theorizing about well, what life on other planets he's very fun he's very fun i like his argument because he argues right at the end of the 17th century his book is called the celestial worlds discovered or conjectures concerning the inhabitants plants and productions of the world and the planets Mm -hmm. he his argument is literally look we didn't even know that america existed until really recently so there's lots of things that we don't know yeah so maybe we don't know that like we didn't know that there were people literally right there on the same planet as us. Yeah. So it's very plausible that there could be people right up there. And he describes basically a billion Earth things and then says, I guess, about the same on Mars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> put, I like that he puts a lot of time into describing things so instead of just He's being just, like, you know how we've got loads of things? <laughs> he is like, you know how we've got butterflies? Here's 16 pages of a description of a butterfly. Probably like that on Mars. <laughs> yeah. He also thinks that because he can see dark spots on Jupiter, that that might be water, which I think is nice. It is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I do like the very, like the almost irrefutable argument. There's people right there we didn't even know about. Yeah. Uh, There's plants right there that we didn't even know about. Didn't have the fucking potato until 200 years ago. Got no idea what's in the ocean. Didn't know about tomatoes. Yeah. Like, imagine what could be out there. Nobody seems to think that anything that would be life in the ocean could possibly count as anything. (laughs) (laughs) Which is quite fun. But, but yeah, I do do really enjoy that as an argument. Yeah, I like it too. And then we get into things, start getting a bit more sciencey because Newton comes (sighs) along and discovers gravity and density and he (sighs) starts theorising about the density of other planets. (sighs) Um, Oh, what was that? That was me being bored... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by Newton. <laughs> by Newton, by science. I don't care about the density of other planets. Yeah. I don't care about maths. Boring. But it's when we start to get a little bit more like what to do a planet, what does a planet need to have be in order to have boring. life on it? Like Saturn's not very dense, etc. blah, 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 blah. Um, and it goes right on. You get think, you know, basically it's a lot of people saying, yeah, I possibly, like you get <laughs> Emmanuel Kant saying, yeah, there's lots of life in space, sure. And it just, I mean, it's people repeating the same arguments. I guess because they're not, it's still against the church at this point. Yeah. The church is still not having any. And then it becomes a science question instead of a philosophy question, which is mm-hmm. an incorrect, you know, division of things because science is a philosophical perspective on the world, is a philosophical, yeah. ontological and epistemological perspective. And if anybody was doing science right, they would be doing ontology and epistemology as well. But that is an argument for another day. <laughs> yeah, I think I like also the how we get to that point. Like Kant talks about uh, kind of evolutionary things as well, like the fact that the life forms on each planet would be impacted by the planets they were on and they would be ideally suited to whatever environment that is. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you know, it's all the same. It is. Evolution. Uh- Speculating about life on planets. It's all the same. It's all the same. Um, Yeah. And then we get kind of into the 20th century and um, we start thinking, you remember when we went to all of those, all those other countries and places and genocided them? What Mm. if someone did that to us? Yeah. Obviously they would come from space and we start getting very deeply complicated and multi-layered, fragmented beliefs in the idea of aliens that are very very clever and which are much more advanced than us for some reason and are gray and have big eyes or are yeah. very tall and nordic looking and live in and the white gonna house and kind of come and shoot us and they're gonna like laser us right off there they're gonna laser the right white house guy. right off of everything yeah yeah which are literally just colonial fantasies of the atrocities of colonialism being wrought upon us, but that's a, rel- yeah. uh, it's a story for another time. <laughs> and I think comes more from the X Files than uh, people are willing to actually admit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
that War of the Worlds was a little bit before the X Files. It was, but like the idea of greys and government conspiracies and mm. like I think this is very like the X Files feels very nineties now because um but before that was... there was a belief that there was an alien who lived in the White House, which I really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, if I was an alien, I'd want the nice, uh, the nice big house. Yeah, so. he was a Nordic. Yeah. I remember that. I can't remember his name. I'm going to look it up. It's like Richard something. So it was a real person that people speak, thought was an alien? Yeah. Oh, that's a bit rude. Uh, well, I think it was during Eisenhower. It's tall white space aliens. This mysterious shade-wearing security agent pictured behind John F. Kennedy as a shape-shifting alien. Aww. <laughs> hey, poor man. The, Just trying to do his job. Uh, the widely held belief, well, I don't know about widely, that the US government is controlled by an interstellar race called the Tall Whites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he moved in under Eisenhower and then hung out for ages. And there are some people... Went back. The ex-Minister of Defence for Canada believes this very strongly. Huh. And he did an AMA a while back and then wrote a book about it. Oh, I remember this. um, And was like, uh, there's an alien. He lived in the White House. Uh, He was like the guy that controlled everybody. He's called like Richard White or something like that. He's got a really boring name. Um, and then they show all of these pictures, but it's just it's just a man. Like <laughs> it's just and yeah. they're like this mysterious shade wearing security agent. He's just a man. Yeah, he's just a human person trying to do his job. Yeah. He's not even that tall or and he's averagely white. Like <laughs> <sighs> Well uh, people people see what they want to see. They do. You don't wanna keep getting in like once you get into this rabbit hole you never come out i had a period of my life where i went well into reading about project blue book and um air force conspiracies and uh, it was extremely fun but uh, i don't don't Mm -hmm. recommend it because you will lose a lot of time to it and i feel like at this moment in time um conspiracies theories and theorists are having a little bit too much impact on the world so it's not like as fun reading as it is in normal They're not times, very you know? fun anymore. I was having this conversation with my friend Belle, who finds conspiracy theories very funny, which is fair, because I also do. And we mm. were talking about QAnon this morning, and I was like, I cannot even start. I can't, can't. Because if I start, that like you can't make sense of it. It's best not to even try. Uh, but I did, there was a time in my life when I spent an awful lot of time on Above Top Secret and the David Icke website um, and various other alien websites just reading their conspiracy theories and having a brilliant time <laughs> that was before i got really into red pill men Do you remember when i was really into it? oh i remember those times that was yeah upsetting. and then the red pill men went nazi and i went off them uh- <laughs> yeah i mean yeah um, so it's just not a not a massive leap from wanting to control women to wanting to control everyone no it isn't anyway that's the answer to the question there's aliens yeah and Nick, our next episode is going to be a bit different and very special. Yeah, it is. Because I have a book coming out. And it's very good. I was reading it as my bedtime stories, just like a, t- a little bit oh. at bed. Uh, so, I, you know, a yeah. lot of murder before going to sleep. It is, is a great idea. idea. It's lovely. Uh, and it works yeah. quite well because each chapter, each section is a little different story. So, yeah. You don't have to sit down and read the whole thing all in one go. You can read just a little bit. Um, But it's called A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Incredible title. Thank you very much. Sarah Perry titled it, so I can't take any credit. (laughs) But... Uh, and it's about Roman murder. So, but we can't have a party, which is what I would normally do to launch a book. Uh, So we decided that we would do a live podcast episode and have... We'll chat about Roman murder and then... Mm -hmm. We will have people can come and ask us questions about us or whatever you want to ask us questions about. Nothing that we have to do loads of research about. And yeah, so when we just, I think that'll be on the 17th, probably, of September 2020. Yeah. So if it's past that date when you're listening to it. There will be, it. like, we'll put, we'll put proper details out on Twitter and Facebook yes. um, and all that. And we will, uh, like, do drop in and watch us live, but we will drop a recording into the podcast feed as well if you can't make it. So that's going to be the next one, and then we'll decide what our next question is going to be live on air when you'll discover what our process <laughs> is. <laughs> We're trying to work out how I have organised things. <laughs> um, but apart from that, 
I think we answered this question. It's very ancient. Yeah. Yeah. A long time. A long time. Many thousands of years and people on the moon have beards that grow on their knees. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, where can people find us, Janina, if they want to ask us other questions? They can find us on Twitter at Sexy History Pod. Or you can email us at uh, sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. Or you can, if you're, you can find us on Facebook at um, Sexy History Pod. Without the E. Without the E, because Facebook is prudes. Yes. Um, I regularly forget that Facebook exists. So. Yeah. Even better, I put all of the sources and pictures and things. I'll put a picture of Richard, whatever his name is, the tall white, on our Kofi page, uh, which is most easily got to by going to bit.ly slash support sexy history. And you can also give us a price of a coffee there if you would like to, to pay for all of the bits and bobs, the hosting and the like. And then you can find me at Nuclear Teeth on Twitter. And I am at J9 and if. And Oliver, uh, producer and editor, is at at Kiwa. I think that's it. Is there anything else? Be nice about us. I think that is it. Tell all your friends. Don't believe in racist conspiracies about aliens. Cheers. Yeah. That'll do. Great. All right. That sums everything up. Yeah, Livia has just started licking herself right beneath my microphone. So I'm going to take that as a time (laughs) to stop before everybody is like, oh, sweet Jesus, what is that horrendous noise? Yeah, we don't want any of that. No, thanks, Livia. <laughs> She's been sitting like behind my microphone with her back to me for this entire hour. <laughs> like a real That's beautiful. A real bitch. She's just she just likes to contribute. Yeah. It was it's good to be back. It is good to be back. Alright. Until next time, Janina. Bye.